Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and after a few hectic weeks when we just truly did not have the time to record the podcast, well, I still don't have time, but I'm making time, gosh darn it. Oh, <laughs> and I'm out of practice. We're joined once again by Kevin, the one-man mobile uplink Hume. What up, Kevin? Hey, man. Long time. Did that out of order, yeah. Um <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> your nickname, one man mobile uplink this week. Remember that SNL sketch with Al Franken? That's like probably right at the beginning of when you and I would even really be able to remember <laughs> SNL. I think a, I remember it was, I think it was during weekend update. Yeah. Where he's yeah. like running around with that little satellite dish thing on his head. Satellite dish. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the classic SNL, man. <laughs> anyway, that sketch was kind of foreshadowing. I think what a lot of smaller, local news outlets would ultimately end up looking like and it's kind of what i picture you doing out there the the only staff photog for two of san francisco's newspapers yeah kevin you're busy you're a busy guy i am man yeah there's a lot going on and especially now especially now the 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 world's opening back up um we got pride celebrations we got concerts we've got people in bars we've got We've got it all, man. What, what have you been seeing these this past week since <sighs> since the the reopening? Well, I mean, definitely done a lot of running around. Um, you know, I think there's a lot fewer people wearing masks, which makes sense. Um, I still take public transit, so I tend to just leave it on because it's kind of annoying to stick it in my back pocket and pull it out <laughs> when I need it. So, um. I've just been running around doing like we did a we did a whole big almost everybody collaborative reopening story on right. reopening day, and I ran around uh, started all the way out in Ocean Beach and worked my way up back into the downtown corridor and the Mission and stuff like that. You know that was a lot. Um, I don't really feel like a lot was different out like at the beach. I feel like people have always felt like when you're outside, they don't really need to wear a mask necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think people are getting more and more used to being out and doing things again. So I think that's just sort of an indicator of where we're at. You know, the thing that I've been, uh, that's been on my radar as of late personally has been concerts are coming back. Yeah, man. And so just, uh, you know, keeping some of my favorite bands on the radar for when they start wanting to announce tour dates again. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, the city is trying to get back to a sense of normal, uh, and there's still a lot to be done. You know, I've gone out in the Tenderloin a couple times in the past week or two to, uh, get some photos of, you know, police officers and homeless people to the hardest parts of my job. And it's a little scary out there, man. You know, um, you know, we, we did the, I know that you guys did a big story about fentanyl and stuff like that a while back. And, uh, reporter Ben Schneider and I went out to a rally, uh, right across from the Turk and Hyde mini park. And that corridor is a little scary right now. There's a lot of people, uh, just kind of milling about and, you know, some look a little like they're selling, some look a little like they're, you know, out of it. It's, it's kind of not exactly a great area right now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, 
I feel like this is something that the city has been having to work on for a long time. And it's, you know, it's didn't really go away during the pandemic. So we didn't really feel like we needed to address it that much, even though we did some efforts. And now I feel like everybody's trying to get back out. And it's something that the city is going to be forced to deal with once again, uh, homelessness and drug abuse and overdoses and our whole city image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we had the fentanyl cover story. We had that story that was kind of following up on it, um, kind of reached a breaking point or, well, reaching a breaking point. Who, who knows what the city's like rock bottom is and, and what's going to go on. I mean, lots of questions about whether progressive policies are too lenient. Uh, plenty would say yes. Others would say, well, you can't just lock everybody up. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a heavy subject. Um, but the, the, the concerts, I mean, this weekend, well, last weekend we had the first, uh, Stern Grove festival. Um, and we got another one coming up, uh, this Sunday with perfume genius. There's a, there's a story on the website right now. I that's like the second time I've done the Z like the, (laughs) the German thing. I don't know what. I'm a, am I a villain in like a, a a Humphrey Bogart movie? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but back to the one man mobile uplink uh, reference. I mean, I think it's also interesting to think about as a journalist specifically, because like there might be this sense if you aren't in our business that, hey, oh, reporters have cell phones. Oh, they have desktop publishing software. They have the Internet. You know, you don't have to go to the library every time you want to look something up. Um, you could do more with less, right? And I, <laughs> yeah, right, you're laughing because no, you can't do more with less. You can only do less with less. And um, we're actually growing our newsroom right now. It's pretty awesome. Uh, it's it, it's a little bit hectic in the, the transitionary period as we're yes. trying to figure out what everybody, uh, all the new people that are coming on board and, and bringing new people on board and who we should bring on board. And, you know, we're hiring. So, you know, you can can find those job listings online i don't have it in front of me right now but um what am i saying oh yeah i think probably everybody motorcycle i heard that i think probably everybody in like the information economy industry is probably working harder than they should i just read an article about that like you know people people who you know in journalists included you know work in bed like, I don't know. It's just like, where am I going with this, Kevin? What I'm saying <laughs> is it's hard. It's, it's, it's easy to believe that, you know, lots of this inf- these information economy jobs are as stressful as us, but it's hard to, to believe that there's anything more taxing than journalism. Yeah. Man. Um, maybe policing. I mean, not to defend the police, but I mean, people don't like the popo right now and their job already wasn't necessarily easy. Well, some would say it's easy. They just drive around in cars. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know, man. Um, that's a whole can of worms. I'll say this. A lot of journalists are experiencing burnout. A lot of journalists are leaving their jobs because of burnout. Um, yeah. A lot of burnout happened in the last year. You know, um, I definitely have felt burnt out um, and I'm trying you know, every day is a new day. So I try to do something to be able to re-inspire myself every day, but you know, it's, it's not always easy, you know, and having assignments of like going out and documenting what, you know, what just how 
hard life looks in the tenderloin mm. isn't exactly inspiring. Um, yeah, but, it sounds I mean, like it's fresh know, on your mind right now. Yeah, it, it is for sure. But I mean, you know, like, I mean, you know, I, I'm not surprised that a lot of journalists had a lot of problems the last year, you know, and, mm-hmm. and photojournalism is unfortunately something that really can't be a work from home. So, you know, I've had to go out and I, I, you know, I knew that. So, um, it hasn't always been bad. You know, I've had some, a lot of, a lot of fun assignments over the years and even in the past year. So, you know, like I wouldn't keep doing this if I didn't love it, you know what I mean? So, you know, but I definitely know that burnout is a thing and it's been, it's been on everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, on on that point, on sort of pulling back the curtain on what it's like to be a journalist and the police, you know, we have this story right now um, that we ran uh, actually a week or so ago in SF Weekly. Um, and it was about uh, a promise that Mayor London Breed made back in February, I believe. And it was like, hey, I'm going to uh, redirect money from the police department to underserved communities of color in the city. And she garnered a lot of great um, glowing headlines for the the plan. It, it seemed like, you know, it's not what like the, the dyed in the wool defund the police um, uh, contingent wanted, but uh, you know, it, it seemed like a step in the, in, in that direction. And um, turns out that uh, she did not do that. <laughs> she, she, she gave, she gave the police more money and also, um, and also to her credit funded this program with the amount that she said she was going to fund it. But the funny thing is like, um, uh, our reporter, um, Veronica Irwin kind of, she was working on something else and kind of came across these numbers that made her scratch her head when she was looking at the city budget. And, and she quickly Googled and realized that no one had really kind of like called out this exact point. And, um, I think the story uh, went. The story went from there. Then Ben Schneider jumped in and helped out because Veronica took some some uh, much deserved time off. They share the byline on this story, and um, they're gonna uh, be talking about that a little bit later on the podcast. Kind of show us how the sausage was made there. Um, So yeah, Um, and it it also made me think. You know, more than a year now since uh, uh, the killing of George Floyd under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer. Uh, you know, where is the defund movement? How realistic is it? Um, you know, London breed, a woman, a woman of color, mayor of San Francisco, one of the most liberal cities in the country. Like if, if, if she can't do it, who can it's it. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think it should be considered. I think that, um, you know, especially at the very least, the culture of policing in this country needs to be worked on. No, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, gosh, I was like, I was on the road the other day and I just kept seeing all those thin blue line flags. And, you know, I think those are started to kind of be show solidarity with the police, but it, it's kind of turned into this symbol of like, at least in a lot of people's mind and in my mind, it, when someone like has that that sticker, I'm like, oh, you're what you're saying is the police can't do any wrong, you know, like, and obviously they can, and uh, you know if that's how police unions feel and 
So anyway, the story that Ben and Veronica get into isn't so much about that, but um, it is sort of about how the sausage is made. And, uh, you know, should be interesting. Journalists love talking about themselves, as Kevin, you and I have just (laughs) demonstrated. (laughs) So uh, stick around. Let us explain how tough it is. And also uh, on the podcast, um, I will talk with SF Weekly contributor Saul Sugarman about his latest cover story, Pride for Sale, which is all about the commodification of pride and, by extension, his identity. So stick around. We'll be right back. freelance contributor at SF Weekly. And I'm Ben Schneider, staff writer at SF Weekly. And we're going to tell you a little bit about how we reported our latest story, Is San Francisco Refunding the Police? I was interested in having a conversation about this story just because I don't know how many readers understand, quote unquote, how the sausage is made. Uh, we present you these polished stories and realistically, we, we start out with a lot of mess and a lot of documents and a lot of numbers that we have to make sense of. Um, so I think that's an interesting process. And quite frankly, I'm also being a little bit selfish, um, though I'm the one who first caught on to this story and realized that it was something we should write about. I also went on vacation immediately after and Ben did do most of the legwork. And so I'm personally very curious about how he made sense of all those numbers and how he molded this into a cohesive sense making story. But just to start. Uh, So we can inform our listeners a little bit about what the story is. If you didn't actually read it in SF Weekly, go read it online. But this story essentially starts with an announcement that London Breed made last July. Um, And this was obviously at the height of the uprisings after the murder of George Floyd. We were and still are uh, to a lesser extent. But at that moment, we were in a really heated racial reckoning. And there was a lot of momentum in a progressive city like San Francisco to defund the police and to follow that rallying cry of last summer's protests. Um, And so in July, she made an announcement that she would start this thing called the Dream Keepers Initiative that would reroute $120 million from law enforcement in San Francisco into black communities. And basically, uh, about a year later, we looked at that budget and we realized that that $120 million was still being invested in Black communities in San Francisco, but it was not directly coming out of the law enforcement budget. Um, And so that was kind of the summary of the story. But there's a lot of information underneath that and kind of how this budget was calculated and recalculated um, that I'd like to get into a little bit. Yeah. um, And I think maybe before we kind of start crunching numbers, it might be helpful for you, Veronica, to say a little more about uh, just how you came across the the basic premise of the story and some of the sort of like inconsistencies that you you saw as you're starting to look at um, you know budgets and um, San Francisco's efforts to to reallocate funds away from law enforcement. Totally. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, the mayor uh, proposed her budget 
weeks ago. And so this is a story that I probably could have stumbled upon when that budget was initially um, proposed. Basically, I was writing a somewhat unrelated story about a mid-market safety and vibrancy program. Um, it's a hyper-local program basically focused on that neighborhood um, and the increase in violent crime and also homelessness and public drug use in that neighborhood. And I mean, the important part about that story is that the mid-market vibrancy and safety program included increasing the visible police presence in mid-market. And so that made, immediately made me think, okay, so does that mean that we're increasing the budget for police to meet this need? Um, and I found myself going down the rabbit hole, ultimately pulled up the mayor's pages upon pages upon pages uh, proposed budget and started combing through it. And I noticed that when she mentioned, or I guess not she, <laughs> whoever wrote the, the budget proposal and actually wrote the text of it, um, whenever they brought up the Dreamkeeper Initiative, they were saying that they were still investing this $120 million in in Black communities, but they kind of just made no mention of that $120 million coming out of the law enforcement budget anymore. And I mean, when I first kind of picked up on that, I thought it was missing something. I thought there must have been some announcement that that was no longer the case or that maybe... I mean, a lot has happened over the last 16 months, and I know our budget has been in crazy flux. So there could have been a million things that happened that would change why that that $120 million was no longer coming directly from law enforcement or maybe only partially coming from law enforcement or what. Um, but I, I mean, I was initially confused. <laughs> I was initially thinking that I was reading something wrong or missing something. And so I basically went to our editor, Nick, and said, hey, am I crazy? Or does this say what I think it's saying? <laughs> and that's kind of how this story started. Um, and Nick basically connected me with you, Ben, and I dumped all that rambling that I just said basically on you and said, hey, is it possible to make any sense of this? Totally. Yeah. And I think that theme of am I crazy or is there something here uh, kind of encapsulates the whole experience of uh, going through this and, and figuring it out. I think uh, you know, it's it, there are some certain baseline facts that um, kind of come up really quickly as you as you start to look through um, this year's budget document versus last year's. Um, one is that the the general fund allocations for law enforcement are are going up significantly. They they go up about fifty million dollars um, from what last year's budget projected for this year. Um, so that's sort of like you know, you, you you talked about Veronica the the rhetorical red flag of the no longer um, any mentions of uh, the Dreamkeeper Initiative being funded by cuts to law enforcement. But then there's also the sort of like math side of it, where um, you know, in in fact, law enforcement budgets are going up, um, and that is complicated by the fact that there is the budget itself is growing, and there are these federal funds available, um, and so that that's part of this story too that there are um, basically when you're looking at budgets over time, there's a lot of moving parts. Um, but I think, you know, we felt comfortable enough looking at the sort of diminished rhetorical commitment, uh, basically no rhetorical reference to reallocating funds away from law enforcement uh, in, in the mayor's budget. And also in um, comments that we got from the mayor's press director, um, Andy Lynch, uh, plus the sort of changing math 
where law enforcement budgets are going up, but the Dreamkeeper initiative money is staying the same. So you kind of put those two pieces together and you see that something is kind of, you know, a little fuzzy here. Um, and that was one of the subheads of the piece, fuzzy math. Um, but it, it's it's not exactly quite like there's like, you know, dramatic smoking gun in, in this material. But I think if you look at all those pieces together, you can pretty fairly and objectively say that the city is changing course in the way that it's approaching, um, you know, the, the Dreamkeeper Initiative and, and law enforcement. The Dreamkeeper Initiative is not being funded through cuts to law enforcement, um, uh, although it is continuing as a program. Um, and meanwhile, law enforcement budgets are going up. Totally. But before you reached out to the mayor's press office or any of that, we were kind of looking at this budget and it was confusing and we thought something was a little fishy, a little bit fuzzy. Um, but I mean, at the point when I left for vacation, we had basically accumulated a Google Doc of links to different documents and different analyses kind of of the mayor's budget that might give us a clue. <laughs> and we were kind of just scrounging through to see everything that had ever been said about this program, trying to make sense of this budget. And I mean, that's where I left. <laughs> I left with a lot of information to come through. And so I'm kind of curious to start, which documents did you focus on? And like, why did you decide to focus on those documents? How did you make sense of all those links that we had? So what's interesting about the Dreamkeeper Initiative is that it, it actually doesn't show up in the budget as uh, line items. It's fully sort of, um, it, it's built into the the budgets of the individual departments that it's being allocated through. And there are like six or seven departments that are receiving uh, chunks of the, of that $120 million that make up the whole initiative. So that makes it even more uh, challenging to actually kind of track that money. Um, and that sort of just, it adds to the, the challenge of, of uh, trying to wrap your head around all this. Um, so anyway, that, that was one step. I, um, and you and I both separately talked to, to Jamie Chen of this group Defund SFPD now. Um, and, and he has collected a lot of data and numbers um, that were helpful to sort of know what to look for. Uh, as as then I went back into previous year's budgets, including the one from last year and then the one from the year before that, basically just like looking at what what um, you know the the funding levels were for various law enforcement departments over time, um, both in the adopted the the finalized budgets for for each of those um, you know immediately uh, succeeding fiscal years and then the adopted budget for the following fiscal year um, and then made a bunch of tables to kind of do the math of, of where the money is going. Um, and so it's interesting because ultimately um, it does appear that, that the city will um, re reduce its net general fund contribution to law enforcement by um, up around 110 million dollars short of that 120 million although the board of supervisors could um could actually push it up to that 120 million threshold uh in this process that's going to happen over the next couple weeks um but that that is complicated by the fact that uh law enforcement spending is going up a lot in the general fund this year um up to to 50 million dollars and so uh, and then in the following fiscal year, the projections are, are bringing law enforcement spending basically to, to the point that it was at um, in, in the 20, 
2019-2020 budget, the sort of baseline starting point that they got that $120 million in cuts from. Um, so <laughs> I know that's a lot of information, but that's sort of, that's kind of the process. How did you make sense of it all? I mean, that's I like, how did you, there's so many numbers and it sounds like you had to do so much math to kind of even come up with the most important numbers because they were so hidden in these documents. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I got a, I gave myself a headache. It was not, not that fun. <laughs> um, I, I tried to, um, in, in writing the piece, like, I think in the piece, I, I did a better job of like illustrating why those, each of those steps is kind of, uh, significant and how they kind of fit together to, um, to show this change in course that I think the city is evidently um, kind of making when it comes to this this commitment to um, divert money from law enforcement to the black community, um, and so uh, you know after kind of figuring out what the numbers are, then it was a matter of sort of illustrating how they are significant to the reader, sort of how they fit into the bigger picture, um, and so from there I think it, it was helpful to like look back at some of the um, look back at and, and bring into the piece some previous media reports on that initial um, announcement that the city would be reallocating this money. Um, and, and basically what I found is that those reports really kind of neglected the big picture um, of sort of how that number was arrived at. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, when the mayor made this announcement last year, that $120 million was, was slated to come over a, a two-year period, um, which, which is something that a lot of um, media kind of glossed over. Um, it, it comes from law enforcement writ, writ large, so it's actually four departments. It's the police, the sheriff, uh, juvenile probation, and the district attorney. So that's uh, all part of it. And um, it's based on, as, as a baseline, the previously adopted budget for uh, fiscal year 2020-21, which was adopted back in uh, the summer of, of 2019, of what they were expecting the budget to be uh, when they were coming back and doing this process in, this, in the summer of 2020. So it's not exactly, this is something that uh, Supervisor Dean Preston pointed out at the time, it's not a super intuitive way to think about how money uh, is working or how, how spending changes over time. Um, they're not, they're not uh, they never were intending to cut um, 120 million from the actual spending that took place in fiscal year 2019-2020, the immediately preceding fiscal year. They were always taking as a starting place what they said a year before would be the the um, budget a year later. <laughs> so that's kind of an important detail that I think a lot of media also missed. Right. And I mean, like, I don't know if you're comfortable saying this. I'll say it. It's kind of the definition of a sleight of hand. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would call it. And you're so diplomatic and, and kind about it. But I'm sure that the mayor's office was not particularly pleased uh, when they read what you had written and, and read the how the statement looked um, from them when you published it. Have you spoken to them since the article was published? Yeah. Um... Definitely, I had a bit of a, a back and forth with with the mayor's office, and I, I think, um, you know, fr there are different ways to frame these kinds of like uh, numbers things, and especially when uh, it's so confusing to um, 
actually like wade through it and figure out what different things mean and and sort of how different kind of time horizons change the um the uh you know the baseline for what you're actually looking at um and so you know the the mayor's office maintains that their initial sort of announcement last year that they um you know were reallocating this money which they did there was some you know evidently reallocation of money that um that would have gone to law enforcement under the previous budget um that sort of created this dreamkeeper initiative and then um sort of enabled it to happen um but in the second year of the program the money that was slated to not go to law enforcement did go to law enforcement some some money um you know more money than was projected did go to law enforcement while this program stayed the same so it just becomes harder in year two to make that that claim um even though you know there's there are ways to interpret it where that is still kind of happening. Um, although, as I said before, we're still not quite getting to that $120 million figure any way you slice it. It's still going to be a little under that. Um, and uh, so so that's, that's another important point here, too, I think. It's so interesting how it all breaks down. And I mean, it's obviously a, a pretty delicate thing to approach. Um, it's worth saying, not necessarily as an excuse but that the mayor is under an incredible amount of political pressure. And I don't think it's fair to say that, oh, she's increasing the police budget because she doesn't understand police brutality. It obviously um, has played a very serious role in her own family's life. Um, And I mean, I live in Bayview. I see her at community events out here all the time. I don't want to say that she's, you know, at all disconnected from black communities in San Francisco. I actually find it to be quite the opposite. Um, But you know, this is a year on. Uh, the political moment was much different in July of 2020, and now you know we have there was the there is the recall Gavin Newsom, recall Chesa Boudin thing going on in San Francisco, like in every other major city in the country. Um, violent crime has increased significantly. Um, if you know, listeners have been paying attention to national news. Uh, the mayoral race in New York is kind of being used as like a metric of how do voters respond to increased violence and are they still interested in defunding the police? So it's a it's an interesting moment. I think it's, even if not much had changed, I am very happy that we kind of wrote like a year on where does San Francisco stand mm-hmm. to a certain degree because I would say in the last year, the general consensus in San Francisco around whether or not to defund the police has fractured significantly. And I mean, I don't want to get into the business of any policy predictions or predicting the future, but I'm very curious to see what happens over the next couple of months. I'm very curious to see how supervisors respond to, I mean, what we pointed out in our article as they kind of go through this budget reconciliation process and also just the pressure that they receive to defund the police or to not defund the police from their mm-hmm. constituents as they go through that budget um, budget process. Yeah, I mean, I, you're, you're totally right. I think it is really important to call out the political context in which all this is happening. And I think it's it's no um, mistake that this, this year's budget doesn't, you know, emphasize that um, it doesn't really call back to even last year 
um, when when the mayor was making a big deal highlighting this notion of reallocating 120 million dollars from law enforcement. Um, you know, this year's budget, uh, I, I think it, it kind of obfuscates that perhaps to to distract from some of the actual numbers that are going on. But also, I think uh, politically, it's just not as salient. It's not something that people are clamoring to hear in the same way. Um, and by that, I mean, uh, you know, large masses of political voting blocks and constituencies. I understand there are still a lot of people who um, who do want to hear that kind of thing and are, uh, you know, advocating for um, defunding the police for other kinds of um, measures related to uh, reforming the police or just giving them less money, uh, whatever it is. Um, I, it's it's still an important issue to some, but uh, you know, when you when you think about you know big city elections where there are a lot of people voting, um, and as you say, uh, just the kind of volatile state of of progressive politics, I think, in in the country and in California with these recall campaigns, um, you know, Mayor Breed has to to thread a bit of a needle here, um, and so it, I think it it shouldn't come as a huge surprise that um, both in San Francisco and it, and it seems like nationally, people are sort of de-emphasizing some of the rhetoric around um, cutting police funding. Um, it's it's just a, a very different context than a year ago. Definitely. And I think that's a pretty good place to end our conversation. Um, but if it's appropriate to say, thank you for talking with me, Ben. Yeah, thank you for, for talking with me. And, and thanks for, <laughs> um, I mean, as as we kind of pointed out earlier, you spotted this and um, it was a really interesting story. It was a lot of, uh, even though it was maddening, it was fun to work on. And I think it's an important story uh, in its way, <laughs> even though maybe it's, it's not super satisfying all the time. It, it, it reveals some important things that are going on um, in, in budgeting and politics and policing and stuff like that. I got so, lucky. I did the you. fun discovery part and you did all the grunt work. So. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we'll do it again. <laughs> We're back with SF Weekly contributor Saul Sugarman, author of this week's cover story, Pride for Sale, about the creeping commodification of queer identity. Welcome to the podcast, Saul. Hi there. Good to be here. Yeah. Well, so the jumping off point for your story is an Instagram business account called That Sounds Gay. Can you start by just explaining what That Sounds Gay even is? So basically, this account is something that we see pretty often in Instagram, especially nowadays. It's not really specific to the gay community. It's a type of store that runs almost solely on automation. So if you're, for example, on your own Instagram account and you you put out a really fancy suit and you are really happy with yourself, you'll see comments below your post that say, oh, we love your photo. We would love to collaborate with you. So that's really common. Mm -hmm. And That Sounds Gay is mostly something that we or many people 
or at least a number of people in the gay community are aware of because they do this, but also because it looks so prominent. And Instagram, you can buy followers, you can buy likes, but this in a lot of ways feels like there is still some sort of organic engagement and following of them. Mm-hmm. And so there are, I say in the story, more than 850,000 followers, which feels pretty close to a million, even though it's a little shy of that. Mm-hmm. And then Essentially, what they're doing is, like I said, a common practice where you'll either get a comment on your post or you'll get a direct message and it'll say, you know, we love your content. We would love to collaborate with you. And so would you like to become a brand ambassador? And that's the basic sales pitch um, because in modern days, when someone's asked to be a brand ambassador, like say, for example, Kim Kardashian was asked to be a brand ambassador. That's something where people will pay her thousands of dollars or more to you know, put on a piece of apparel or you know, hold out a perfume or something and say, I love this product in, in an Instagram post. Mm-hmm. But in the modern economy, you get a message that says, would you like to be an ambassador? And then you say, oh, yes, I feel so flattered because I'm just like Kim Kardashian. I am, <laughs> right. I have this huge influence and this huge following. They're like, that's so great. Our shirts are normally $40, but we're going to give you a 30% discount on this shirt to be mm-hmm. a brand ambassador. Okay. And so that's kind of the basic sales pitch. Essentially, what that means kind of is, you know, instead of being hired in this modern economy as a model, you're basically giving up your image rights and paying for it. And that's kind of like where the jumping off point for this account is. Mm -hmm. And insofar as, you know, why it kind of pushed me over the edge in terms of talking about pride merchandise and pride apparel, it, it really started with the fact that like, after seeing this company message me probably three or four times, I was just getting really irritated at how relentless it was. And it kind of made me want to understand more about who they were. And so I, I just started messaging them and it really wasn't long after that very quickly. In fact, I almost sent to you, you know, the, just the screen grabs of all the Instagram stuff because every once in a while I just get really infuriated and I pull the journalist card. I'm like, I'd like to write a story about you. Like, would you like to talk to me now? Would mm-hmm. you like to like go on the record about why it is that it, it just, it feels like I'm talking to a robot. I just figured if I kept saying like customer service or something over and over, <laughs> that maybe a real person would show up. Operator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like pushing like the the button. And that never happened. And so eventually I started emailing them. I started tracking down phone numbers and it became apparent that, you know, there really wasn't anyone at the wheel. I I don't think to this day that I've spoken or connected with a single human uh, at this specific Instagram account. Right. And so, I mean, one of the things you note near the top of your story is that you are used to, you are accustomed to seeing rainbow colored vodka bottles and, and Salesforce sponsored pride events. Um, but that somehow this feels different. And I guess one way is that it feels totally automated, but can you kind of go into a little bit more about why this feels different than, um, a Reebok branded pride branded thing, a, a fossil watch branded, pride thing why why does this feel so different and and why does it irk you more if it if if it does so i want to say first that 
while it does feel different, it's, and as my story points out, it's kind of an evolution. Mm-hmm. It's because in a lot of ways, it isn't that different at all. Um, you know, there's a discussion of uh, the absolute bottle. The absolute bottle was, uh, to my knowledge, maybe not at first, but at some point they at least paid homage, if not worked with, uh, the designer of the pride flag. Okay. And, you know, you see a lot in, in subsequent years and it's, I'm not, I'm, first of all, I should point out, I'm not, cause I don't, I don't know the history of all of these things. There's only so much that I can read in a day, but <laughs> sure. there's, but there, um, but you still see from like, you know, from that time and probably before and probably after just like more and more companies that have been picking up putting rainbows on things and putting and collaborating with the LGBTQ community. And in that way, you know, especially I would say, you know, not that I was, I I did not witness in the eighties or the nineties, I was not part of, or I I was not going to the pride parade until the the 2010s, but I know that I've personally experienced and others have expressed as well, like how they're so happy to see these rainbows because they're like, Oh, well, this big company is saying, you know, we, we, love that they're showing solidarity with the gay community and they're happy about that. And so in that way, seeing something like that sounds gay and these other Instagram accounts, it's not that different. Uh, the rainbow is a very pretty image. I, I want to say a pretty color, but it's all of the colors. It's very pretty to see. And I love wearing it. I know that a lot of my friends love wearing it. I know a lot of people who aren't gay love wearing it. And so seeing that, you're seeing both something that's visually appealing and you're seeing something that feels like it's solidarity with the gay community. And at first, and for many years for me, there's no problem with that. I don't, I don't see an issue with that. However, in subsequent years, in participation with things like AIDS Walk and Walking in the Parade, uh, AIDS Walk is it's a walk around golden gate park and it raises millions of dollars. And it's something that happens nationally in different parts of the country. And when you go there, you see nothing but Gilead sciences and Kaiser permanente and uh, maybe Sutter health and a bunch of other corporate sponsorships of this event. And, you know, moms with strollers, and I, I feel as though maybe 15% of that event is attended by the LGBT community, uh, whereas it probably was a much larger number at some point in time. And similarly with Pride, you see a sort of similar evolution that I've only seen since my first attending of it in 2012 to today, that there already was at that time a large heterosexual kind of community involvement with it. And and over time, you see that happen more often. You especially, there were a lot of stories that came out in 2015 when gay marriage became a federal right. Mm -hmm. And then everybody wanted to come. It was like that. That's at least what the story was that pride all of a sudden became trendy to go to. And on the other side of it, you see basically the gay community, which for so many years was having this event for themselves, not because they chose it that way, but because people weren't interested in it in the same way that they used to, they are now. And so 
now they're seeing all of these other participants. And so on the one hand, the same way with the companies where you see the rainbow and you're like, thank God people want to be part of this. On the other, you feel disconnected from it. You feel disenfranchised. You feel like this isn't genuine participation. This is just someone putting on a pretty rainbow and not understanding the community. So that's something that we have experienced for a long time outside of this Instagram account. And we have been wrestling with, I know that I have been wrestling with it. And I hear all the time, I hear friends and members of the community say how they don't go to Pride anymore or how they don't participate in other events that have been taken over by all of this corporate sponsorship because they don't feel like their voices are heard or that this, or that this event is for them anymore. It's for the tourists, for the onlookers, it's for the people who are just looking for a good party. Mm-hmm. And the difference that you asked about, how that's different from what we see with the absolute bottle and with the Salesforce party and with the Wells Fargo pride contingent. And I heard about a Home Depot parade float, which is, you know, a a wondrous piece of irony considering that they're considered homophobic. And so you see all of these things, but the difference is they're companies that we can look at and say, you know what, we don't care about what you're doing. And we can go to their CEO and we can accuse them. We can shame them. That's something that came up in an interview that didn't make it in the story. But the apparel attorney I spoke to said, you know, a powerful tool that you have is to shame people. Mm-hmm. And you have that, you have that capability. And with this account, you don't have that because it's nameless. Right. You don't with that sounds gay. It's just it's just kind of like out there. It's doing its thing. And the reason why, you know, there's this this kind of fundamental shift between the corporate rainbow and the corporate participation and this specific account is that it's not just this specific account. It's it's really it's social media. And that sounds like when I wrote it and when I researched it, I was like everything about it, you know, I I a lot of people that I spoke to expressed interest in it and for in my mind I'm like how is this really novel? Because it ha- it's been going on for so long. But the truth is, and as my story points out, social media has been around. I always, it's been around forever, but I, I kind of put it at the, pick it at like the point of like 2007 mm-hmm. at, with the introduction of the iPhone and then the introduction of apps and the introduction of like basically that kind of changing our lives at that point. Right. Um, so we've had it. Let's just, let's just pretend. Well, let's just say that we're going to jump off from 2007 to today, it kind of feels like the social media, this element of it with the rainbow has been around or, or with the sales of apparel and merchandise has been around forever. But really, while it has been around for a while, it's only really picked up steam in the past few years as places like Shopify and Etsy and Square um, and a number of others have really sunk their heels into integration so like you're watching your youtube video with your influencer and there's just an integrated spot underneath that says their merchandise is for sale by teespring and you go to instagram and you're browsing your favorite influencers you know you know pose and their product is already tagged in their instagram shop that's true for their like by their uh you know their their 
umbrella company, Facebook, they have the same thing where you're, where you have your Facebook business pages and all this stuff is now becoming integrated. And that's still kind of a newer thing that, I, that many people have said anecdotally, not because they're experts, but anecdotally have, have told me has picked up steam for the past like three or four years at most. And so with that, you see companies like that sounds gay and basically what they're doing is similar to what the companies are doing, the Reebok or the Salesforce, because those companies have already been shamed into saying, well, you can't just put a rainbow on something. You have to like say that you're part of it. You have to stand up for what we believe in if you're going to try and participate in the month of June for Pride. So That Sounds Gay kind of takes that business model and says, okay, we're going to make this kind of an activism cause-related shirts because that's what the market responds to. But because they don't have a face attached to it, they don't. we don't know who they are, basically it's activism coming from someone that we can't say is actually an activist. We can't say that they actually support the gay community. And that is what's different. And I think that because of social media, we see a lot more of that because that's where our eyes are drawn to. You don't even have to be at the parade anymore. June comes around or really any month with any specific cause. The one that came to mind and I pointed out to you in one of my edit comments was about the cancer community. So like if, you know, cancer comes around for a specific day or month, you know, you see your, your visual feed flooded in pink Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. In the same way, you have Pride come around. And it's for the whole month. I mean, it's a really great. I mean, it's it's true about anything. It's St. Patrick's Day comes around. Valentine's Day comes around. Your feet is flooded in red. Your feet is flooded in green. Uh, so for the whole month, your feet is flooded in rainbow. And I think that's a powerful marketing tool, as much as it is something that's good for the gay community or detrimental to it, as I explore in the story. Right. And so you, you, as you say, you made a real effort to find out who was behind this account. You never did. Um, but in your search, you found at, at least one other company that is selling some of the same t-shirts that seems to be marketed in the same sort of cookie cutter way. Um, can you tell us about that? And, and can you tell us what that, what that told you, or at least what it made you suspect about who might be behind that sounds gay? So it's an interesting thing because I did find one specific company that was selling very similar and some of the same merchandise. And that was named I'm very gay official. Like I'm as a contraction, but without the apostrophe Mm because it's an Instagram handle. And I will say before getting too much further into that account, I also found other ones that were, I, I don't want to speak out of hand because I don't have my specific notes in front of me of those accounts. There were, I, because Instagram asked me the same question. They asked, what other accounts are you talking about? And I flagged for them three accounts that I specifically found and then three other accounts that someone who had been complaining to me had found that may have also been no longer active or didn't seem that as related. Like one was called like, it, they were selling bandanas mm-hmm. and the person who flagged it to me said this account was created on the same day as that sounds gay and like kind of has a similar marketing scheme. And Instagram told me later during my reporting, they had already shut that Instagram account down. 
And there were these other ones that kind of seemed to be about like woman empowerment. Like it was always something or like I'm a an avid traveler. You know, like it was always some kind of like And it had that same construction. I'm 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 it actually it wasn't the I'm, it was the official part. Okay. Usually, usually there was an official at the end of it. And the, so that was the similar part. And then it always said, and and also it the the other part that was similar to me, although not the same, was like it was trying to capture the spirit of a certain demographic and often like with like with women empowerment like it was like well you know it was it was something that spoke personally to people and the other part that was the same is it it always had something that said made in dot 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 with love Mm -hmm. so that was so that specific phrase seemed to appear in a couple of them, at least, if not more. So when I say I found these accounts, some of them were active. Some of them were like renamed accounts. So if you go into Instagram, you can look at a profile and they created this, this way of looking at a account based on its former usernames. So you could see if it about its authenticity. So if you look at that sounds gay, it's not the first name they had. And one of them I think was, it had official at the end of it. So it's also kind of like where I started seeing these similarities with the other ones. Mm-hmm. And the made in dot, dot, dot with love is kind of like where I started seeing the real overlap. At first I thought, well, these are just, it's literally this really elaborately, although par- probably poorly written computer program. That's just pinging Instagram servers and finding weak spots in order to keep creating these accounts to keep setting up these portals for people to buy this merchandise that's coming out of, I'll be perfectly blunt that I'm sure my first thought was a Chinese factory. And then I thought, why not? I, I'm again, just being honest, a Vietnamese factory, a Turkish factory, a Russian factory Mm -hmm. (laughs) somewhere because it seemed like there may have been a language barrier in the way that these accounts were set up. Sure. But, but ultimately I, I really didn't know it. It really could have been. In fact, I will say that my first thought actually wasn't that my first thought was cause I had done domain name searches for the corresponding websites and something had pinged in Pennsylvania. I was like, what if they're like log cabin Republicans <laughs> and they're just in Pennsylvania and they're selling these things and they're, it's a, it's a big joke to them. Like they're making money off the gay community and then giving it to Donald Trump, you know, like that's, that's was probably actually my first thought. And so I thought these were all related and I spoke to an apparel attorney and she said, don't think that they're related, you know, don't, don't jump to that conclusion because they, they, it's more likely that one of these companies saw another one of these companies and just ripped it off entirely and put up another website. And so if you go to these websites and you look at their terms of service, there's two things that come out first. Um, and as you and I, you and I discussed the nature of like, uh, the word scam as the story came up. One thing that they they actually disclose in their terms of service is that they use automated bots. So I feel like that's actually a, a method to shield them against any sort of lawsuit if for some reason they're disseminating information that's not like actually valid. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I think is kind of comical is you do see in the terms of service that these websites are just 
carbon copy ripoffs of each other. So if I go to like, I'm very gay official, and you go to the terms of service, it says all of the, you know, messaging from that sounds gay is property of that sounds gay or something like that. So, so literally like the, they're not changing the terms of service to say I'm very gay official. Like someone just ripped off the, the, the that sounds gay page and put it onto the I'm very gay terms of service. Again, I thought, well, they must be related. And I did reach out to I'm very gay official. I found through them some, through some different Googling and Facebook, some sleuthing. I don't really remember how I got to where I did, but I found the web designer who was based in Morocco. Okay. And I was able to reach him for I'm very gay official. And I was able to reach him on Facebook Messenger. And I said, I asked him, you know, are you related to That Sounds Gay? What What is your relation to I'm Very Gay Official? He said, I designed the I'm Very Gay Official website. I'm like, well, what about That Sounds Gay? He's like, no, I did not design that website. And then I said, well, where are your shirts being sold from? Who are you? Why are you selling the same things that That Sounds Gay is selling? And then he stopped talking. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I didn't really get a clear response, but I do think that it isn't one enterprise that's doing this. Um, I think that it's just a very, what this told me in finding these other accounts to get back to the question is that whoever is behind this in whatever country, including the U S they know that there's a way to work this system within social media and within Instagram. And really, I, I, I was mostly exploring Instagram, but there's no reason why that can't be Facebook or TikTok or even the shell that is MySpace or any number of places. They know how to work this system in a way that has very little oversight or consequences. Yeah. And, and in that way... I was really grateful to pursue this story because I feel as though this is probably one of the first times that's that a legitimate effort has been made to turn the screws on both Instagram and on this account for what they're doing. It reminds me um, of this story that I did uh, early on in the pandemic um, when, you know, we were hearing all, all the time that, oh, you know, we're going to be able to reopen soon, you know, we're returning to normal soon. And of course, you know, took a year and we're still kind of feeling it out. But um, there was this um, advertisement going around um, for a floating boat cinema. That's what mm -hmm. they were calling it. And it was going to be like somewhere in the Bay Area, maybe in the Bay, maybe in some cove. And I think, you know, like, um, so, you know, do the Bay or, or, or maybe Live 105 or Alt 105, excuse me, some, 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 you know, blog like that picked it up. And, uh, and then we picked it up and we just wrote something really quick without really thinking about it. We just a blog post like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then, um, and then we got like a tip that it might be something, there's something fishy about it from a reader. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, yeah, like what, we're going to sit in boats and how are they going to be like anchored? to how you pointed at a screen. How are you going to keep the boat pointed at the screen? Um, and so I, I remember like, this. yeah. And so I started looking into it and basically um, there were tons and tons of Facebook accounts, um, at least Facebook accounts. I'm not sure if there were Instagram accounts, but they were all created 
Um, some of them, the information didn't say this, but maybe this was a mistake on, on this organizer's part. Some of them did say created in Australia. And so like, you know, I used the tools at my disposal to find, like, it was a rabbit hole. And finally came out the other end and I got a hold of this guy who was a, a former, um, uh, uh, Britain who is now living in Australia. And there's just like, and they all had this similar name. What was it? What was it called? Like hidden something. So it was like hidden San Francisco, hidden Chicago for hidden, you know, all these cities hidden Austin. And they were all promoting the same events, many of which never happened. Um, and they were selling tickets for them. I got a hold of a guy and like basically what he told me was that he wasn't stealing people's money. And yeah, a lot of these events didn't happen, but that that was because of the pandemic and that, you know, he was just, he would put up tickets to gauge interest. Um, but it just, it felt like a throw it up against the wall and see what sticks. And, and it was, this guy, I guess, was able to do all this with probably a very, very small staff himself and a couple other people out of Australia. And I can see the same thing happening here, except like you, he, whoever's running this thing doesn't even really have to like set up events, which is a, which is a barrier. You know, they just have to contract with somebody who prints these shirts and, and they, they are sort of taking the mantle of the LGBTQ plus community and they're using that to sell something. And, and like you said, you don't know if they truly support this cause or if it's just, um, if it's just a business opportunity. And I think what you identified is that now with the help of Instagram and all this integration and with bots that are easier to set up than ever, um, AI that's easier to run than ever, you know, people can, can kind of just can do these things really quickly. And I think that is something new and novel that hasn't been talked about a lot. And it's, I mean, it's kind of fucked up. (laughs) I think. Yeah. Anyway, the floating boat cinema never happened. Uh, It sounds like people are getting their shirts. Some people aren't getting their shirts though. You said there were some complaints from to the better business bureau about people trying to get their shirts. Right. And that sounds gay and not getting them with, you know, the company and with the bots and with, with all of that, I do think that, you know, you're, 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 you are onto something in terms of how that's kind of like a new thing that's going on for me, kind of what bothers me about pursuing this. It's funny because as I was researching the story, I found, I really didn't know that it existed, but I found a similar one with L magazine where they were also taking all of this merchandise that they had gotten from various companies and kind of talking to the companies about their involvement with the pride campaigns and whatnot. This was in 2019. I actually think that in 2019 you saw a lot more of that. I believe, although I'll correct myself later that that was the introduction of the rainbow Listerine bottle. That and was so, a great. That was a great example of, of yeah. <laughs> Listerine bottle. Well, no, I, there's this the wonderful tweet where it has the rainbow Listerine bottle next to that Walgreens coconut shampoo that I'm always. I still mm-hmm. I still use that coconut shampoo, but they have a rainbow coconut shampoo. So they have the rainbow Listerine bottles with the rainbow coconut shampoo under it, 
and the guy had said, now I can wash my gay mouth <laughs> and wash my gay hair and really feel truly seen. And yeah, I think that after the Rainbow Listerine Ball, that's how we felt. It was just like, oh, well, I mean, great. Now Listerine can do it too. And I actually thought that it was hilarious because as I was reporting it, a number of people, like not just one person, but several people, several people in the gay community were like, you know what? Like if you're in Iowa and you have, you know, a Listerine bottle that's rainbow in your CVS and that makes you feel a little bit more connected to the community, let somebody have that, you know? Yeah. So, which is interesting because I, I don't quite feel that way. Mostly I feel that's a pretty rainbow. I'm going to buy that, but I don't feel like I'm especially seen in the Walgreens because yeah. I'm picking up a rainbow Listerine bottle. Well, that's but... some of the tension, which is that, that <laughs> argument that you do, you just, mentioned that's like you know rep- representation does matter and even if it's a shitty form of representation some some people within the community are saying well better than nothing and right and you wrestle with that in your story yes i do um i think that that's kind of like what irks me is all of this information is out there for us and it's as much as I want to sit there and I do, I want to blame the company. I mostly want to blame also aside. I I'm, I'm, I'm irritated. I really wanted to talk to that sounds gay. And, yeah. and I also wanted this to kind of be a moment, like as I was pursuing it and it's stories ballooning over 2000 words and I'm sitting there and I've, and I've spent months on it. I'm like, would it really be so bad if Instagram actually paid attention for five seconds and shut the account down as I was doing it? Like, what if they just killed my story by mm. closing this account? Um, because it's, but what, but even though that is hightail irritating, frustrating that these people are sitting behind just these v- curtains and we don't know who they are, what they're doing, but it's like, I don't know what the consumer is doing. Like, why are, why are you going out there and buying these things Mm. at all? You know, and really this story did not have to be written to, to what you had said to get back to like this, to get us back on track to talking about this Instagram account, (laughs) uh, about people getting this product or not. This story did not have to be written for people to know not to trust them. Cause if you just Google the account, there's nothing, if not just, droves of complaints there are 11 complaints on the better business bureau um there were several threads on like at least the numerous threads that i saw on reddit about it and then on twitter my favorite my favorite comment was let's play gay bingo like if you've ever had to get a message from that sounds gay because we all get them and if you ever even like like their comment whatever you do if you engage with them once those bots are after you forever i'm still getting messages from them and yeah i think that i mean we've already discussed you know the the novelty of this new system and how it's happening I don't really know what else, I mean, where that's going to take us. Uh, I I haven't, unfortunately, in the process of reporting it, I didn't get a chance to really deep dive into this, but the attorney I spoke to, who, it's funny because what I quoted her on, I thought it was a little bit of a tragedy because she really was just as indignant as I was about this company. She was like, you know, people really do 
Like you really shouldn't have this company exist the way that it does. And I was like, okay, but everyone keeps telling me scam. Like, is this a scam? You know? And, and mm-hmm. so I had to quote her on, I had to quote her on that because I, I, I felt like the people who were calling it a scam didn't really understand the nature of the word. Yeah, because um, people are getting their T-shirts a lot of the time. Sounds some like some of the time. Some of the time. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I did not personally talk to someone who didn't. I did not, and I also because um, by the time I spoke to her, it was probably in May, and I didn't want to fork over twenty-seven dollars or whatever um, without enough appropriate lead time for them to actually try and send me the shirt and for me to try to follow up with customer service. So otherwise I would have gone down that route because she said that you learn a lot just by ordering it, like where it's coming from and what the tags are. And, um, and so what someone, at least one person, if not two, I did really speak to quite a few people, but a couple people said that what that sounds gay does is they selectively send stuff out and then they selectively promote those people that received it. And if someone doesn't, then they block them on Instagram. And I do think that this has at least a kernel of truth because I found a lot of these influencers just by finding their names tagged on these That Sounds Gay posts and then reaching out to them personally. And then I also started commenting on the posts on That Sounds Gay. And the more that I did it, like after a certain point, I don't know when it switched over, but I was then restricted from commenting on their posts in the future. And I think that's a good place, good place to call it. Um, We touched on so many things that, that weren't in the story. So if you're listening to this first and you haven't read the story yet, um, you should go read the story too. You can uh, read pride for sale in uh, SF weekly. It's on racks in the city right now. Um, And on our website, sfweekly.com. And I want to thank Saul again for joining us. Thanks, Saul. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. Our inimitable co-host is Kevin Hume. Our audio engineer is Mike Huguenor. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast. Read us online at sfweekly.com or pick up an issue on the streets. See you next week. (laughs) 